Hi, this is the Bring a Brick podcast, interviewing professionals from around the world who use improvisation in their work and in their life. I'm your host, John Cooper. My guest this show is Patrick Short. Patrick is a 30-year veteran of improv and also the owner of Comedy Sports Portland in Oregon. He began using improv during graduate school, teaching education candidates how to survive in the classroom. He has led workshops for over 500 organisations. Pat has seen a lot of improv. He's also worked for clients including Apple, Nike and IBM. I start the interview with a pretty simple question, asking Pat how he got into improv. It's a very long story. I'll try to tell it as quickly as possible. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in biology. I was yeah. headed for uh, law school in environmental law. And due to some scheduling, it became less expensive for me to continue in school for a semester than to get my own health insurance. Okay. That's a very American story. And uh, so I took full-time uh theater courses at the University of Wisconsin while I was living at home with my parents it was a very inexpensive thing to do and the hook got set uh big time in terms of theater I took a, a course in stage management and was assigned to be the assistant stage manager of a children's theater show uh, okay. I showed up they didn't know what they were going to do for music so I offered to improvise music along with their show uh, yeah. became a big hit and uh, the professor, John Tolch, informed me I was going to grad school in theater. And I said, sure. And part of the deal there was uh, that I was going to become a teaching assistant in creative drama for children, which was an elementary ed requirement. And uh, it was hilarious. I took the course one semester, and the next semester I started teaching it and continued for five semesters. Wow, so, so you had that decision kind of made for you by somebody else. Yeah, he wa- he wanted talent. my music and yeah. uh, said, we'll trade you an education for it. Oh, and by okay. the way, we'll pay you and give you an office. Wow. And uh, that was great. And then the, the comedy sports stuff started there as well. In the summer of 1985, I was working in the university's summer stock, uh, music directing a show. Uh, Professor Del Lewis came to some of us and said, hey, there's this guy from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Dick Chudnow, who wants to expand his improv show to Madison, mm-hmm. and would uh, he's offering some free workshops. So we took workshops with him, and after a couple workshops, I thought to myself, well, this is really fun, but I'm going to be too busy. So I declined the opportunity to join it. And, right. and then when I went to the first show, about two months later, I realized I'd made a horrible mistake. <laughs> so, uh, it was so much fun to watch. And uh, I got a chance a couple years later, several of us were hired by a children's theater in Sunnyvale, California, including okay. Jeff Kramer, who had performed with Comedy Sports in Madison. We were friends. We played a lot of softball together and acted together and taught together. Yeah. And uh, we... Uh, along with a couple other people, were roommates in a famous house called Raspberry Place. And from Raspberry Place, uh, Jeff started Comedy Sports San Jose uh, with uh, me as his uh, general manager. And that was in 1987, and we have not looked back. Wow. You you make it sound like such a smooth transition. 
Oh, but very kind smooth. Of one thing, one thing <laughs> led to another. Were there, were there any kind of big risks or big decisions in that? Were there, I mean, you say you kind of had that one big doubt where you kind of like had that one big thing where you said, oh, I should have done this. How easy was it for you to make those decisions back then? Was it... Was the theatre was the theatre stuff well established? Was it a bit of a no-brainer, or was it was it a big risk decision? Uh, it was a little bit of a risk, and uh, certainly my mother was a little taken aback that I was going to go to grad school in theatre instead of law school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, we we left a law to my older brother and my niece. They they have that covered in the family. So, um, I uh, it was that was that part was a big risk and. Um, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a big risk, it seemed like a very natural transition in California. We all worked for this theater company and we're going to do this other thing as well. Now, by the yeah. time comedy sports started, I had been fired from the theater company. Uh, I like to say for in, uh, suggesting too many innovations, but, uh, okay. the, the other side of the story might be, might be a little bit different. Uh, and then the same week we had our first preview show for comedy sports, I tempted into the high-tech industry in customer support. I was in sales within a year, and that side of the career took off um, simultaneously. Right. Okay. So you, you just just to, just to bring you back just a second, um, you said you were fired. Now, I've met you a few times, and you, you strike me as such an incredibly easygoing guy. I could never imagine that you would get fired from somewhere. Did you have very strong opinions early doors about the stuff that should be done and how it should be done? Well, I did, and uh, I might not have expressed them in the most diplomatic manner. But <laughs> uh, just one example, when you have a touring company that's in Philadelphia and hotel reservations have fallen through and you wire uh, $800 of your own money to uh, make sure that your folks are not on the street uh, yeah. in the night and uh, you ask for the sixth time why we don't they don't travel with a company credit card um, and then it takes six weeks to get paid back and you act uh, you act out about that which I did yeah um, yeah that sealed yeah. my fate I think right right so kind of a lack of common sense perhaps a little bit like I could have been more diplomatic and um, uh, you know it was meant to be so uh, interestingly, the the person who is the general director at that company, I, I believe, is going to retire this year. So it, he survived 35 more years somehow without me. So okay, so okay, <laughs> so what, back back when you back when you kind of started and you you kind of got into, I mean, what what I, I I'm trying to kind of the, the the term applied improvisation is one that I'm kind of interested in discovering the origins of in terms of how long that's been going. How how was it when you started going in and doing workshops and showing people improv, what was it like in those, I mean, early days, when you started, what was it like? How would you then go in and do stuff with people? Would you openly use the term improv, or, or did you have to find other ways to pitch what you were doing with the companies that you worked with? Oh, we were very open about using the term improv. Uh, okay. I did not hear the term applied improvisation until early in this century. But uh, our origin story, I like the term, um, in 1989, we were doing a show at a place in San Jose. And afterward, uh, we were approached by several gentlemen who said, literally, the first thing they said was, we want to think like you. 
And after we made sure they were talking to us, we determined that they were from Apple. They were working on a printer driver or some software driver project, not Mm -hmm. agreeing on the goals or how to achieve them. And they saw us playing seamlessly together. Right. And they thought, we want what they have. Yeah. And so all we had to offer them at the time was our syllabus of performance training which we reduced from eight weeks to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And several of us alternated going out to Cupertino to teach them. I was not even, I, I sold it, but I, I uh, was not the teacher on the project. Uh, right. I believe Derek McCaw and John Politowski did it. And then they came back at the end with a check. And we thought to ourselves, well, uh, this is something. And yeah. we're in Silicon Valley, so we just simply started announcing uh-huh. that at shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. people in Silicon Valley, even in the late 80s, were taking chances on stuff that other people wouldn't. And yes. so it started happening. I mean, we worked at Apple again. We worked at Hewlett-Packard. We worked at um, all sorts of companies that have come and gone since. And we slowly adapted it from training them to be performers because most of the time we weren't going there for six weeks yeah. or two or two and a half hours a week, but we'd have one shot, a two hour or three hour shot. And we, so we adapted pretty quickly, but it's still at that point, we were very bright people. We were just teaching them improv warm up games. Right. But we discovered okay. pretty quickly that, how you talked about them afterward was what made the difference. How you reflected. Right, okay. So how you reflect in terms of what the what the outcomes are sure. of these things. And and yeah, we so were that, very that is, very yeah. smart to realize early on that uh, you could take any set of goals and those games would meet the goals. Yeah. For the most part, as long as you reflected on them with the goals in mind. Okay. And that was a fairly early, I mean that was a fairly early discovery. So uh we actually were pretty competent early on even though there was no way we should have known what we were doing. We were improvising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well of course, yeah. Do do you think do you think the fact that it was Silicon Valley played a, a contributing factor in that? Would it have worked if you had done it anywhere else? It may have worked, but it would not have been uh gone as fast. It would not have yeah. been as easy for us, certainly. I think yeah. it absolutely played a role. Yeah. Was the, were the, was the, were they like technology companies and such? Almost or, all or of them. The, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about like 1989 technology companies. Yes. That very early kind of pre dot com boom, early yes. days of the internet kind of. Ah, right. Okay. So it's a very creative experimental environment. Yeah. And this is this is pre internet. Uh, the um, uh, I mean, my company that I worked for at the time, a company called Altos Computer Systems, which was later purchased by Acer, uh, mm-hmm. in the late 80s, the Internet wasn't out there. I mean, at, at Altos Computer Systems, the company I worked at, yeah. uh, we did have internal email, which seemed glorious yeah. to me. I mean, you could write something and, and uh, anywhere between one and 300 people or 400 people could receive that yeah. message at once. Wow. Right. That was a big yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that uh, wasn't happening outside the company. 
we were we were far away from the dot com and and um, I mean it was this was so early that uh, political pundits were not even scoffing at Bill Clinton and Al Gore for referring to the digital superhighway, right, which okay. they were in their 1992 campaign. I'll never forget that people were just scoffing at them and having yeah. been inside technology companies. You, we could see it coming that, wow, if we could hook together these communication systems, yeah. we, wow, we could email everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the web part of it, the uh, display part of it, it hadn't really occurred to me. But the thing that, oh, we could connect everybody and everybody could email each other could revolutionize the world. Um, so even at that level. Uh, so that was it was early, but there were still companies who were very forward thinking, and that played to our advantage for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how does that say compare? If you just kind of counterpoint that by saying what what the industry's like now today, because we live in a far more connected world, and and so things that that kind of pique my interest when I talk to people are like how much time people spend looking at screens. We now live in a massively interconnected world where people uh, are online so much that maybe social skills are deteriorating it could be an argument because we're not spending as much time doing actual FaceTime and we're spending too much time texting do you think that's uh, something that improv should be addressing more it absolutely uh you're you're right to the point john the uh amount of time that we're texting each other we're focusing on screens we're being entertained, we're participating in entertainment, as opposed to directly connecting with other human beings, uh, that the, the ratio has just exploded in the tech over, over uh, relationship uh, direction. And the training that we offer, uh, it's not a complete antidote, but it certainly can help people relearn how to connect with others. Yeah and communicate with others and have empathy for others is there a a difference in the kind of clientele you get now than you did say originally what 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 have you observed in the time you know if you look at the time you started to now are there any kind of obvious things that stick out in terms of how stuff has changed in in this world of teaching improv in, in within the areas that you do there are a couple of things uh that have changed the first thing that seems different is that in 1989 and 1990 uh we were being contacted by people who really felt like they were stepping way outside of Mm -hmm. the norm right in how they were uh approaching their issues in their company or in their department yeah and they were stepping way outside of what was normal at that point I think now, from a marketing standpoint, a lot of people still think they are stepping outside <laughs> of it. But yeah. uh, having been involved for what is now 27 years of this, yeah. Yeah. I have trouble thinking of it as an outside uh, outsider status or an outlier. Uh, yeah. It's not. It's it's absolutely core to what needs to happen today. And the another difference is the speed of how things happen in the world yeah, is exponentially yeah. faster now than it was in 1989 and that is expressed through our work in two ways in our marketing we are often contacted by people who want us to work with them that week or the next week 
or maybe in two weeks. I right. would say well, within a really short lead time. That's yeah, within two weeks short. is seventy-five yeah. or eighty percent of my work. Yeah. I don't know how I I can't budget properly based on that. I can only you know guess that it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, now we do have some. I'm I'm talking uh, later today to a client who is uh, talking about January and another one tomorrow who is talking about April. But right. uh, the the other side of that is I wonder if they're going to have their jobs then. <laughs> so uh, things move so so quickly. Yet the in the performance side of it, and not performance improv, but in the performance at work, the speed has resulted in a world where one person cannot lead everything, yeah. one person cannot know everything. That you must rely on your network to have the knowledge to function, and That's you must re- and you must rely on improvisation. Yeah. To take the next step, because if you plan five steps toward a goal and you rigidly follow them, the goal yeah. will not be there when you get there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, not anymore. That's, that's that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's like you've you've just sent my brain kind of freewheeling into into lots of stuff. There's a, there's a little. Uh, drop-in session that, that I do um, where it's people who have never done anything at all before and even in the little warm-ups it's kind of like you can see I mean they adapt quickly but it's kind of like the the the, the, the like oh oh I see what this is yeah and, isn't it, and it isn't it fantastic when the lights go on it's that amazing is, that's what drives me people ask how, how do how do you keep teaching beginner performance improv which I'm just tonight I'm finishing up my 90th uh, CSZ 101 course, full wow. course. Uh, wow. It's now seven weeks. Started as eight weeks. It's now seven weeks. Uh, it's my 90th one. People ask, how, how do you do that? Well, <laughs> there's nothing better than watching the lights come on. And I, I that is a constant reward. That also ties into the uh, the applied improvisation side and the yes. corporate and educational and social work that we do. But yeah, yeah, it is. It's a beautiful thing when you see someone connect at that point. So con- converse to that. What's the biggest challenge you've had then? Have you ever had a situation where you kind of you're already into your career, you kind you, you you know what you're doing at that point, and then you go in somewhere and you've got people who think they could sh- could kind of do it, and then it's just kind of it's not clicking or it's not connecting, or or you have you know a, a jock or a you know someone who wants to challenge what it is you're doing, and and find a way to disprove what we all know. Have you had any challenges like that? We have. We don't have many. I like to joke that most of them come from law firms and from the right. senior par- senior <laughs> okay. partners at the yeah. law firms, uh, and that is actually true. When I when I'm doing work for a law firm, I have to go in ready for that. Okay. Uh, but for the most part, I've had a lot of success and I've not had a lot of people directly challenging inside of the. Uh, inside of the event. Mm-hmm. And in fact, on the applied improv side, as of this date, this, this is me knocking on wood, yeah. I, uh, I haven't had a failure. I'm, I'm, I kind of wonder what that would be like. As okay. you've, am, I'm sure, had, we've had plenty of times when we've done a show that wasn't up to our standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and certainly in the corporate setting, not too many, but maybe once a year, once every other year, you have a show where you just did not solve whatever problems were there. Yeah. And you know what that 
that failure feels like. I yeah. we have not had that on the applied improv side of the house in um, in my 27 years. Yeah, it's 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 rare, but my takeaway when shows go like that, uh, yeah, that it's an old comedian saying, which is you never learn from a good gig. You right. Know, it's kind of like you can only yeah. It's kind of you've got to have that bad gig every once in a blue moon in order to remind yourself why it is you do it and to apply yourself back again the next time. Certainly, the and the horse. possibility of failure drives you to excellence. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. I go into all of the training events fully aware of the possibility of failure and working against it. Mm-hmm. But once we're rolling, it just doesn't seem to happen. We just just ride it, and it works. Uh, applied improvisation, if you have uh, some theoretical backing, if you have some experience, uh, if you have some good approaches, and you've really listened to the client, it's going to succeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 you're reminding me of something you said in, in, a, in a workshop in Rock Island that you took where I was there, and you said, um, prepare lots and prepare to do none of it. Yeah, uh, which is kind of like you know have have everything ready you know um, and, and and be ready that that might not be the tools that you need for the job. Um, right. And funnily enough, I now apply that when I do stand up. That's if I, if I'm doing just to digress, if I'm doing my character act, Danny Pensive, and I'm on stage. If I'm doing a kids show, um, I will have all the material kind of laid out in my head, and but be prepared that these kids might not be on board with all of it. So at some point you just have to sack off the material and work with what you've got in the room. Absolutely. So it's kind of it's kind of have have those things there, but be prepared that you don't you you, you can't deliver them in the order that you may want to, or you can't deliver them how you may want to, and you may have to go with the, the you know there might be a child in the front row who's just shouting the word fire engine every five minutes, and you just have to roll with that, <laughs> you know, because that's what happens. Um, yeah, Absolutely. I'm, I'm, just in, in my in my notes, there's a thing, and it came up in a previous conversation. I think it was with, it might have been with Drew Tarvin, which is um, interest in improv versus size of company. Um, one thing I observe over here in the UK, and you can confirm, deny, digress on this as a question: Do you find it's it's larger companies that are open-minded enough to want improv because they get it because it's a because it's a big thing where you have a company that's big enough to experiment versus smaller companies who might not have the ability to take those kind of risks? I believe that more of my work has come with big companies because they're able to take the risks. They can afford them. Yeah. Uh, At some point, engaging with us is a leap of faith. Yeah. If you haven't done it before. Most, uh, maybe it's not most, but a lot of the work we get is mm-hmm. someone has joined the company and they worked with us before somewhere else. Yeah. And they said, this is a really incredible workshop and yeah. we need to do this. So even kind of... then, even mm-hmm. then, the sales process, uh, even if they're talking about later this week or early next week, there is a, a lot of nervousness. There's much more nervousness with small companies or small organizations because the dollar amount... Uh, is more daunting to them. The uh, fallout from should it the you know should it fail, the fallout yeah. would be much worse for yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, and and doesn't doesn't mean we haven't worked with small companies, but uh, the Nikes and the uh, Intels and the Hewlett Packards are much more common. Yeah. Uh, of course, than you know uh, Google and. 
and uh, I've been working a lot with uh, uh, State of Oregon uh, okay. agencies lately as well. So that and that's word spreading one by one. So yeah. and again, those are big organizations, and they can they can afford the risk. Yeah, I, I think we we find that with the BBC, the comedy sports guys here that I will do stuff with. Um, I think the, the BBC and Siemens and some of those kind of guys, like bigger clients, where they'll, they'll get it because they're big enough to kind of understand it. Sort it's of probably thing. also easier marketing to them because somebody in their organization will have seen something like it before, if not your own organization. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I think the, the worst the worst situation I come across every now and then is where I use the word improv and then I put the word comedy in and then they don't get it and they think it's something like stand-up and it's kind of it's misunderstood and you have to explain it and then it gets very knotty and it's almost like you want to bin the entire conversation off and start again yes and, yeah. and, and rephrase it you know and it can just get a bit, a bit sticky at that point um okay well, so... sometimes sometimes in working with prospective clients I literally say I would like to start this over yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and yeah. sometimes that works yeah no that's, that's a really good tactic that's a perfectly good tactic i might employ that um so as, as an improviser in yourself and the time that you've been doing it do you see any are there, are there any kind of trends and hot topics at the minute anything that piques your interest specifically about the work that you're doing anything that people want more now than they, they maybe previously did in terms of engagement you mentioned that you get like really short turnaround times on stuff yes uh, uh i I'm not a specialist in long-term engagements with companies. Uh, okay. And uh, if we were to do that, the couple that we've had have been like uh, more of a take this basic thing and roll it out across a company so that different people are getting it. Yeah. Um, that uh, that we've done and very successfully. The thing of taking a group and sticking with them for a uh, like a, a group of 20 for a very long time is not something that uh, I specialize in. Right. I'll be, I'll be blunt. There are people who do it and do it very, very well mm-hmm. and can really grow uh, some interesting things from that. Uh, that is not easy because um, clients come and go in terms of the, the members of the, de- say you're working with a department over a six-month period, they will yeah. add people. People yeah. will go away. Uh, plans change. It's an improvisational, you know, volatile world. Mm. And uh, so, for me, it's it's easier and more satisfying not to have to deal with that. Uh, that may make me uh, miss some opportunities that that we could have. I don't see a whole lot of people asking for that. I think most people want. The basic things. So people are still asking for team building, but they're right. also now asking for improv training. Last okay. couple of years, I maybe started about 2014 or so, okay. uh, and a lot of people are saying we need customer service training, and we heard about you. We need leadership right. training. We have a new manager, or new, we're merging two departments, and we need to work on those things. And we hear that improv is good for that. What can you That's tell? That's good. Me? That's good. Yeah. Asking asking for it on its own terms instead of having it kind of you know masked within another skill. Right. You know. Some people talk about hiding it and being secret agents and sneaking it into companies. I've not done that. I've not really felt the need. And I think if people aren't ready to hear the word improv, then they're not ready to work with uh, us anyway. That's that's um, an interesting point of view. That's because I'm on the fence about it, and it's kind of like I, I find that I over here. Obviously, culturally, we're both in different countries. 
I, I'm, I'm finding over here that when I do, and I don't do it as much as I used to, but in the, in the last, say, couple of years, when I have been talking to people to try and pitch some of the workshops through comedy sports to people, that they, they haven't, you, 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 it, it had to be kind of cosseted in something else in order for uh, them to get yeah. it, but that was, you know, that not always the case, but it was just some of the time, and, you know, my success yeah, our rebranding, wasn't, wasn't amazing. Our rebranding that we introduced in 2014 has helped us that, we are member companies of CSC Worldwide. I run CSC Portland. Yes. Uh, and that CSC Portland provides that training. And, oh, by the way, we do the comedy sports show. That yeah. has helped uh, yeah. clean it up for me a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, I'm going to say that. I was on the committee that helped roll that through. But uh, I, I really feel like that, that has helped that message. But part of the reason, I think that I haven't had any total failures, even any part, really partial failures in this training, is that I have a tendency to walk away from it if I don't, if it doesn't smell right. Okay. And part of that is, well, we can't say that it's improv. Right. Why not? Well, we can't. They just won't be taken seriously. Well, then a lot of other stuff we're going to do won't be taken seriously. When they realize they're playing a game, I mean, I can call it an exercise, but when they realize they're playing a game, yeah, then, yeah. then, then maybe that's going to be a problem. Most, so people, mm -hmm. most people, just when they realize what we do, just leap into it and yeah. love it. But it, again, it takes that leap of faith to book it. It takes that leap of faith for people to start. Part of my job is to make it easy for them to do that. If I feel yes. like it's not going to be easy for me to do that, maybe I need to back away. I used to sell manufacturing and distribution systems uh, at, for a small company here in Beaverton, Oregon. And when I was interviewing clients and touring and takeaway, oftentimes we would meet with them the first time and I would realize this would be a disaster for us right. because we had long-term relationships with these companies mm -hmm. and i'd simply at the end of it you know say thank you so much looks like you're doing great stuff here i don't think we're the right answer for you right and right. then uh, sometimes they chase us but uh even then it uh it wasn't a technique of playing hard to get it really was this isn't right if i if i capture this bear and shove it into my, our cave with our programmers and trainers yeah. it will kill people Right. And you need to not go there. I think part of the part of the uh, uh, lack of failure that we have, or part of the success. Let's talk about success. Part of the success <laughs> we have is I am willing to talk, uh, willing to walk away from things that don't that don't yeah, look like they will succeed. That's a, that's a big one. That's a big one. The ability, to, you know, when is it appropriate to say no? Yeah, so, and sometimes so, that's hard on the bank account short term. But you have yeah. to think, you have to play long game because yeah, those things yeah. could could bite you long term. Yeah, it's, it's lessons that can be learned the hard way, um, stuff like that. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, certainly when you're working in a culture of yes and, it's kind of like the knowing when to say no. Yes, um, there is a time to say no. Yeah, yeah, and that can potentially only come with experience. Um, so I'm gonna kind of, I've got a couple more questions for you um, before before we wrap up. Um, you've kind of already answered the first one, but I'm gonna ask you it anyway. What do you get out of the work you do? What drives you? Well, first uh, I'm making a living and I'm not working for the man. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. That's a big and one. I haven't since one. 2000. I left the high tech world in in 2000. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, 
that's the best part of it. it it's I, I work out of my home, which is a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could have an office at our theater. We have an office, but uh, I get to work out of my home. I work yeah. uh, a lot, but I work when I choose to, and for the most part. And I love again. I love seeing the lights come on. Uh, that's truly, truly amazing. I love uh, signing paychecks for my employees. Yeah. There, there is nothing more fun than paying people for making stuff up. <laughs> it's just, it's, it feels like you're getting away with something. Yeah. And that's a very satisfying feeling. Now, for those of you that are not in the improv world who might be listening to this, we provide yeah. a ton of value. Please be assured of that. But at the same time, we don't know exactly what we're going to do when we engage with you. Yeah. Not exactly. I mean, I have a very strong idea. Yeah. But uh, I'm also willing to throw that idea over the side and go with what's uh, more appropriate, more exciting um more targeted at the time that yeah the ability to to change from the plan drop the plan Mm -hmm. is uh great so we prepare 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 but we're ready to throw the plan overboard anytime can i interpret that as saying you are willing to push people out of their comfort zones because that's where they grow i am but i don't do it in a a uh, gross, touchy-feely way. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people are very afraid of theater people uh, mm-hmm. in general, and yeah. I don't come off that way. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. fact, I one of my little tricks is I alert people in the beginning that I'm a sports fan. Uh, because okay. most theater people aren't sports fans, as you mm-hmm. know. But there are some who are. And uh, I'm a shareholder in the Green Bay Packers, Uh and that's one thing I either mention that or I quote from Pat Riley's book, The Winner Within. He's a former NBA coach. Or in the instructions for a couple of early games, I use sports terminology, like a basketball term. Of uh, when I want people not to block each other from getting to where they need to go, I say, yeah. "Don't block and don't set a pick," which is a basketball term. And the the sports fans are all like, "Oh, that's hilarious." Okay, this guy's one of us. I can trust yeah. him. Yeah, so and those are the people. Those are the people who are most likely to uh, want to take you out. So um, if you get them on your side early, you increase your odds of uh, truly having them uh, immersed in the experience successfully. So yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's fascinating. That, so that, I love that. that. I early. love being able to ditch the plan. Uh, I love being able to choose my own hours. Uh, I love the community we've built. Here in Portland, in CSE Portland, uh, even mm-hmm. reaching beyond our own walls, the improv community here in Portland is uh, growing really fast. It's magnificent. And uh, uh, worldwide, through CSE Worldwide, I mean, uh, and through the Applied Improv, I'm yeah, Applied I, Improvisation I Network, yeah, I've got lots and lots of people who are doing the same things. Maybe they're doing it a little differently. Maybe they're working in different industries. Uh, all this stuff that you can learn from them and sometimes that you can teach them and sometimes when you can teach people it's very satisfying very yeah, satisfying yeah it's it's blossoming here in Manchester as well the amount of improv going on is just exponential 
Um, That's fantastic. Partly the reason for this podcast, just to try and you know encapsulate as as broad a term of stuff as you can, which seems to be a a reasonable place to wrap it up with my final question, which is: Do you have a favorite improv game at the moment? Absolutely, it's bobsled. Bobsled. Yeah, bobsled is the best. Uh, I learned it in uh, 2012 at the Applied Improvisation Network conference. Uh, William Hall taught it to a few people, and then it spread like wildfire. Wow. And uh, you get in groups of four. You face the same direction as if you were sitting on a bobsled, although you're standing. People in positions two, three, and four put their hands on the shoulders of the person in front, and then the bobsleds start moving their way around randomly around the room, uh, trying not to run into furniture or other bobsleds. And when they're moving successfully... The facilitator gives four commands. The first one is change, in which the first person jumps off and gets on the back of the bobsled while the bobsled's moving. All of the commands happen while the bobsled's moving. Sounds dangerous. It is. The second (laughs) one is it's very dangerous with uh, middle school or junior high students, like uh, 11 through 14-year-olds. Oh, very bad. Um, I try not to work with them if I can help it. the second command is rotate. Everybody does a 180 at the same time, and the bobsled goes the other direction. Okay. Switch. The people in positions two and four switch places while the bobsled is moving. And trade. Person in position three on the bobsled jumps off and joins a different bobsled. And the, there's so many beautiful things about this game. All of the commands could mean any of the other commands. Right. So people are forced to communicate, to help each yeah. other to uh, let go of the mistakes that they're going to make, because they're going to make a lot. There'll be a ton of laughter. Uh, They trade between teams. Uh, Things get messed up, and they have to come up with solutions. There uh, are multiple leaders. Later in it, we give the command, the ability to deliver a command to the person who's on the back of a bobsled. So you have a person in front deciding where it goes. You have the person in... um, in back, giving the commands, and most of the time when you give, give a command, you've given up leadership because you're involved in moving away from the back of the bobsled. Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on there. Which is fantastic. Awesome. So it's a lot about leadership, uh, a lot about dealing with uh, volatility and uh, chaos, It's uh, and groups find, find different things, but most of all, they just laugh and laugh and laugh. Uh, and figure it out. And, and it's a really nice example of, I learned this game from William Hall. He thinks he learned it from Matt Weinstein, who maybe learned it from somebody else. Uh, I added trade to it because okay. I wanted to see the bobsleds mix up. Right. Uh, Craig Klugman uh, discovered the uh, thing about having the person do the uh, commands from the back. Okay. And then Chris Crotty in Sacramento, CSC Sacramento, added merge and split, which I use now at the end. We merge them together. We split into different bobsleds. We merge together. And suddenly, at the end, it's the metaphor is beautiful. It's all one bobsled. Right, right. That's you great, know, the fact that and, it adapts like that. Yeah, and so different people seeing the game and adding their thing to it um sometimes people add things to games without truly understanding the games but i i will tell you i i believe that that craig and uh, uh chris really discovered something deeper in it and that's mm-hmm. allowed me i mean i taught them the game but they gave it back to me with uh 
something stronger and deeper and richer. And that's that's really what this community is about. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's, that's in beautiful. CSD. It's in AIN. That's beautiful. It's fantastic. Cool. That's awesome. Pat Short, thank you so much for uh, joining me and sharing your time and sharing your stories. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For more interviews, visit the bringabrickpodcast.com website. While you're there, you can also sign up for the mailing list and send me your comments and recommendations. And if you like what you've heard, please do rate and review. Every click does help.